the way that God made us is that there's a rhythm to everything. So whether it is the rhythm of the seasons, and right now we're moving into spring and the allergy season, and the green cloud that comes over Greenville and Pitt County is here, whether it is the season of life and work for you that is incredibly difficult and challenging, Q1, Q2 stuff, whether it is the part of life that you're in, in which maybe you're just thinking, I need to sprint to make it to the end of the school year, and then I'm done, and then I get to rest a little bit. Or maybe you're in a great rhythm right now, in which you're finding that balance between work and home, between enjoying life and all the responsibilities that you have. No matter what it is, when we gather for worship, whatever rhythm or part of the rhythm we are in, we are here to remember God and know that he remembers us. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that God has made everything beautiful in its time and that God has put eternity into our hearts. So all the rhythms that we have are really just pointing us to something much greater. Hear this from Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. For great is his steadfast love toward us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. I'd love to look with you this morning in John chapter 7. So if you have a copy of God's word, please turn there. The words are in your bulletin and should be on the screen. Uh, this morning we're going to focus on verses 37 through 39, but all the verses uh, are printed for you, 37 through 52. So I'm going to refer to some of those other verses, but I'm primarily focusing on 37 through 39 this morning. It's kind of the grand buildup of everything in this chapter. Um, so I'm going to read John chapter 7, 37 through 39. This, what I'm about to read you, they are the words of life. These are the words of life. Let's try to take this in. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Let's pray. Oh Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can read it. Thank you that we can read it together. Thank you that we can hear it. Thank you that you have recorded it, kept it, preserved it, so that we might know your thoughts and know what it is that you think is best for us in our lives. Thank you for giving us insight that we would never find otherwise about the world and life. Thank you that you have given us this Gospel of John so that we might find life in Jesus over and over and over. So do what you need to do, do what you want to do with us during this time as we look at these passages, these verses together. Bring us to a deeper sense that true life, everlasting life, a life of joy, really living, is only found in Jesus. 
We pray this in his name. Amen. I want to tell you on the front end that I, I love this passage of Scripture. I love the Gospel of John, chapter 7 and chapter 8. But I want to tell you that I'm not quite sure that I've gotten to the bottom of what these passages are about yet. And I just want to tell you that on the front end. Because there is so much here in these verses, 37 through 39. It's deep. It is nuanced. It is... It is way beyond me. And so if the sermon seems a little strange in John 7 and John 8, I just want to tell you on the front end, I've, I've wrestled with this passage for years, and I'm still wrestling with it. And I'll share with you, and I'll take you as far as I can go. But if all that does is just raise more questions, me too. But I want you to know on the front end that there is so much here, and there's so much that is beyond me this morning, but I'm going to share with you what the Lord has given me and how far he's brought me. We are picking up this story where, where we left off last week. John Paul presented to us John 7, 1 through 31, in which the idea, the question that was trying to be answered was this, who is Jesus? Remember this? There were some who thought Jesus was just a good guy. There were some who thought Jesus was a deceiver. There were some that wondered whether or not he actually was the Christ. Um, there were those in attendance uh, in Jerusalem that actually wanted to lay hands on Jesus and move toward killing him. Um, and last week, that's what we were thinking about. Who is Jesus? Do we think he's just a good guy? Do we think he's just a teacher? Do we think he's actually deceiving people? Do we recognize that he actually is the Christ? Um, we're picking up with that story. So what I'm about to read you today and, and what I read to you already and what's after this, nothing has changed. Look at verse 43. After the verses that we're going to focus on, the same things are still happening. Verse 43 tells you that people were still divided over who Jesus was. There were some people that wanted to lay hand, hands on Jesus still and they wanted to kill him. There were others in verse 40 and 41 that just thought he was a good teacher and... Um, some that actually believed that he was the Christ, and others that were still even confused as far as just who the Christ was in general. But one name in particular that I need to make you aware of at the end of this chapter is this guy named Nicodemus. Do you remember him? Way back in chapter 3, he had that amazing encounter with Jesus at night in which he was coming to him, asking him questions. Actually, he was doing something else, but you can go back and listen to John 3 if you want to. And here Nicodemus is. He left that encounter with Christ in John 3, and now he shows up here at the end of chapter 7 when everybody's thinking about who is Jesus. And this is what Nicodemus says in verse 50 and 51. Because the people that he runs with, the people that he's with all the time, hear this report, and they start chattering about what they should do. And Nicodemus speaks, and he says, hey, guys, are we going to judge this guy without even actually hearing him? Are we going to move too quickly to label Jesus when we haven't even really been close enough to him to hear him up close and personal to ask him questions? It's a pretty neat moment. You know, whether or not we left John 3 thinking about what happened with Nicodemus, what was, was this a good encounter for Nicodemus, bad, whatever, here we have at the end of 7, oh, it was good. 
That encounter he had with Jesus had a profound impact on him. Here we have Nicodemus even defending Jesus. And if you fast forward that to the end of John's gospel, we find Nicodemus again helping take Jesus down from the cross. So whatever you think about Nicodemus in John 3, if you find yourself in that position wondering who Jesus is, give it time. God is at work. In the same ways that work on me trying to understand this, he's at work in Nicodemus with his questions. He's always at work in our lives. So let's dive in. Let's dive in. The feast that we're looking at in John 7, where Jesus goes to Jerusalem, the feast is supposed to give us clues about who Christ is. Remember this? Last week, the chapter started with this. Jesus' brothers wanted him to go to Jerusalem so that he could become more popular. They wanted him to go to Jerusalem so that he could become a cultural icon, so that more and more people would hear him. That's what they wanted. And Jesus didn't want to go to Jerusalem. Jesus did not want to go with them for that reason. He was not interested in becoming more popular. He was not interested in in being a cultural icon. That is not what he wanted at all. So he stayed back. And remember, Jesus' friends that were closest with him that wanted him to go to Jerusalem, they wanted him to go to Jerusalem because this gigantic feast is going on. That's how they thought Jesus could become more popular. Hey, if you just show up at this feast in which everybody is coming to Jerusalem to attend, if you can just go there, you'll become more famous. Jesus didn't want to do that. Now, here's what's actually going on with the feast, so you can dive in a little bit more and a little bit more deeply to understand this feast of booths. You can read about it in Numbers chapter 29 if you'd like. There are details given there about the feast. It was a seven or eight day feast, depending on how you want to count the, count the actual feast, the length of the feast itself. And in this feast, this is what was going on. Um, before I say that, do you realize how strange it is for us living in the West to understand a feast like this? Like seven or eight days. Like, I racked my brain this week to try to figure out how I could communicate this, and I'm not trying to offend anybody here, but the closest I could come up with is Krzyzewskiville. You remember? Every year prior to the Duke, North Carolina game, you can actually apply to rent space, if you will, or stay in a tent for more than 70 days prior to the Duke, North Carolina game. So students actually spend their lives basically outside leading up to the Duke-North Carolina game. Because at Duke, at Cameron Indoor Stadium, they only allow a certain number of students to go in. And so everybody wants to go. So they have to camp out for weeks, for over a month, just to try to get into the game. And yeah, they still gotta go to class, and they've worked, they've got all these rules. If you go read them on the website, it's actually pretty hilarious. But that is the closest thing I could come up with to think about what it would mean to be at a place where there was this great excitement about the anticipation of something happening. And in our part of the state of North Carolina and all across the state, Duke and North Carolina is a huge rivalry, right? Not offending any of you that are Duke fans or North Carolina fans. I'm going I'm to keep my biases to myself here. But it is a huge, huge game. And people camp out in anticipation that it's coming. Well, at the Feast of Booze, people were gathering together for seven, eight days to celebrate something. 
They gather there to remember what God had done. Here's what kind of happened. On day one, they would sacrifice 13 bulls to God. Day two, they would sacrifice 12. Day three, they would sacrifice 11. All the way down to seven bulls. And at the time of the sacrifice, what would happen is one of the priests would carry this golden vessel of water and wine. And through this elaborate procession, he would go all the way down to the altar and pour out the water and the wine on the altar. And while he was doing that, people were playing trumpets and they were banging cymbals and they were shouting and they were singing. They were singing Psalms 111, 113 through 118. It's part of the reason why I read 117 to you as a call to worship this morning. They were praising God because of who God was. They were declaring that they wanted God to impact the nations. They were singing of their history and God's provision. They were excited about all that God had done for them and all that God was for them in their history. They even sang phrases from different parts of the prophets like, you, Lord, will draw out salvation from the wells of your mercy. That you will continue to be merciful to us. Those are things that they would sing and proclaim. There was this sense of jubilation There was a sense of being glad of seeing people that they hadn't seen in months or even a year. There was this gigantic buildup. And here is some of the good news that it meant for God's people, the good news that it meant for me and you. They remembered that God was absolutely committed to them. Kind of like every week when we get together, we get to remember that God is absolutely committed to his his people. Through thick and thin, through exile, everything, no matter what's going on in our lives, God was committed to them. They also got to remember that, in particular, this feast was commemorating their wandering in the wilderness. But all their wanderings was not without purpose. They were wandering around, but oh, they were going somewhere. Do you ever feel like maybe today, if you look at your life, that you're wandering and feel like you're not sure that you're going anywhere? God's people were remembering that they wandered, and yet they were going somewhere. It was a time in which they remembered how weak they are to make life what it should be. It was a time that God's people remembered how weak they are, and how if they really were honest with their lives, They could say, you know what? I can't really make my life the way that it should be. I need something, someone outside of me to make my life what it should be. It also reminded them that they were part of a bigger story, that they were actually part of God's kingdom. They were part of God's people on earth. They were part of showing and illustrating and reflecting the glory and love of God no matter where they were. Whether they were in bondage, whether they were in exile, whether they were enjoying this feast, they were always part of God's kingdom. And it also reminded them that God will never leave them. Because he's so committed to them, he'll never leave them, he'll never forsake them. And at rock bottom, perhaps you could say this, that this feast of booze that's talked about in this chapter, where Jesus' brothers want him to go because they could get real popular. 
that feast was actually at rock bottom about grace. That grace is always how we relate to God. That grace is always how God relates to us. It also reminded them that because of that grace, God's word always defines who we are. God's word always defines who we are. You see, everything about this feast was supposed to give us clues of the coming Christ. But what happens in this text that we read in 37 through 39 is that Jesus still has to tell us that he is the answer. Jesus still has to tell us that he is the answer. Listen to what he says in verse 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus stands up at the end of this feast and he says, if anyone's thirsty, come to me and drink. If you believe in me, out of your heart flow rivers of living water. That's what Jesus says on this last day, the great day of the feast. He makes this absolute invitation to anyone, anywhere, anytime. That means that the invitation that Jesus has here in the first century is for us today. He's inviting us to come to him. He's inviting us for any dissatisfaction that we have, insufficiency that we have, lack of understanding that we have to come to him and to be satisfied and to be filled. This invitation is for anyone who is on earth. If you're alive and you're not Satan, this invitation is for you. The only person that this invitation won't make any sense to is if your life is perfectly complete. If you're here this morning and your life is perfect, then this invitation won't make any sense to you at all. But if you feel and know that somewhere in your life, your life is less than perfect, Jesus is giving you this invitation to come to him. Whether you believe for 30 years or whether you're wrestling with the truth claims of Christianity, this is a real, legit invitation. He's saying, come to me. Something not satisfied in your life? Jesus says, come to me. Now, can you imagine how awkward this must have been for Jesus to say these words? Just think about that for a moment, all right? How awkward it would have been for Jesus to make this declaration. Here's an analogy. Here's an illustration of how awkward I think this would be. Just imagine if you can that you attended my wedding when Jenny and I got married. Just imagine, just put yourself there for a moment. It was December of 2000. Imagine that you're in the church where we got married. All the plans are done. Everyone is there. We actually had way more people show up than we anticipated to our wedding. So they had to put out chairs. So there wasn't any breathing room. It was a fire hazard. <laughs> My dad and Jenny's granddad officiated our wedding. We were with our closest friends that were able to attend. It was amazing. It was an amazing service. And at the end, when they said, kiss your bride and made the declaration, I now present to you, Mr. and Mrs. David Osborne, whatever. Just imagine if at that moment, right after the declaration had been made, 
if someone yelled out, I love you, Jenny. Just imagine how awkward that would have been. That is what Jesus is doing here. Think about this. God's people have been together for seven or eight days. Jesus stands up at the end of this feast and he says to them, if anyone's thirsty, come to me. Everyone there has been eating and drinking for seven, eight days. Everyone has been together. People have been smelling food and tasting drink for seven plus days. And Jesus stands up in the middle of that and says, hey, if anyone's thirsty, come to me. What do you mean, Jesus? What, what are you talking about? I've been feasting with my friends and my family. I've been feasting with God's people for seven days. I'm not thirsty at all. As a matter of fact, I'm full and I'm ready to go home. I bet that this invitation of Jesus was in large part lost on them, which is why there's still division regarding who Jesus is, right? They don't get what he's saying. They don't understand what he's meaning. Jesus, I'm not thirsty. I'm full. I've had all I could handle. They have been taking in all the smells, all the celebration, all the tastes, all the nostalgia, of hundreds of years of celebrating this thing. Hundreds of years of celebrating belonging to God. What Jesus does here is really subversive and it's really awkward because what he's doing here is he's actually critiquing the entire feast, isn't he? He's actually saying that what you've just been doing for seven or eight days, it isn't enough. He's actually saying what you've been celebrating that God's people has always been celebrating for hundreds of years, it's inadequate. What he's saying is that everyone here is still unsatisfied. Isn't that awkward? He is really pushing them. He's really getting deep into who they are. And like most of us, we're just kind of oblivious because, you know, we're comfortable. I've been with people that I've been wanting to be with for seven, eight days. I've had everything I wanted to drink and eat, celebrated, cheered. I'm good, Jesus. Those are the very times when he's like, really? Really? You really satisfied with life? Everything in your life is adequate? Really? Jesus is always pushing us. He's always going deeper and deeper into us so that we might recognize our inadequacy and the inadequacy of everything else to satisfy our deepest, deepest parts. Now look at verse 39. Jesus makes this amazing declaration and John says, now, when Jesus said, dot, 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 that tells you something profound. It tells you this. John was there, and he heard what Jesus said, and he had no idea. So what did John do? This is a possibility of what John did. John was there when Jesus makes this amazing declaration, if anyone thirsts, come to me. 
And John probably went up to Jesus after this feast was over. And he was like, Jesus, when you made that invitation and you talked about how like living water comes out of something, like what are you talking about? Otherwise, he wouldn't write it this way. Do you see what I mean? 37, 38 are Jesus speaking. Verse 39 is John's commentary on what Jesus was saying. Either John went directly to Jesus or he started asking Peter, who understood a lot about these things, or others who were there. It's like, what did Jesus mean with this? So Jesus said to him in one way or another, through Peter, through James, through whoever else, or directly, he says, John, when I gave that invitation and I talked about like living water coming from your heart, I'm talking about the Spirit. That's why John says, now when he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him, on and on. That's how John figured this out. These little clues that are throughout the gospel accounts are beautiful, and they make these authors so human. They didn't get it either, just like we don't oftentimes. So here you have John saying this and then telling us what Jesus is talking about so we can understand you see, water is a metaphor in the Bible for the Holy Spirit. It's how he's talked about in the Old Testament. It's how he's always described in the New Testament. It's a metaphor for the third person of the Trinity. It's a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. Well, what does the Spirit do? How does the Spirit make this stuff happen? What does he do? Well, let me tell you two things. How does the Spirit do this? Well, the Spirit is a pointer. The Holy Spirit always points people to Jesus, always, inevitably, inexorably. He always points us to Jesus. That's all he ever does. He points us to Christ, always. Jenny and I went to a concert at Deepak in February, and it was at night, obviously, and when the band came out on the stage, there was just this spotlight. It was a spotlight on the band. And the band that we wanted to see was playing and everything else was dark. I could hardly see the people that were in front of me, but I could see the person on the stage. I could see the band on the stage. The spotlight was on them. That's what the Spirit does. The Holy Spirit focuses our lives on Jesus and everything else gets minimized and Jesus becomes clear and Jesus becomes the focus. That's what the Holy Spirit does, is shine this magnificent, supernatural focus of our hearts and our lives and our minds onto Jesus, and everything else is minimized. And the second thing that the Spirit does is that he makes ideas experiential realities. So when you read through the Bible and read through the New Testament, what you find is this is what the Spirit does. He takes ideas like being born again, and he makes them experientially real in our lives. It takes these ideas about the love of God. That's an idea. And the, whole, the Bible says the Holy Spirit actually pours the love of God into our soul. So anytime you're understanding an idea of Christianity and it becomes alive in you, it's because the Holy Spirit makes ideas experiential realities. He makes us alive. So when you get convicted of your selfishness and you're driven to Jesus, that is the Holy Spirit. So when you're understanding the love of God in Christ, that's the Holy Spirit. 
So when you are having and gaining and understanding wisdom that you wouldn't have, that is the Holy Spirit. Wisdom is this idea. The Holy Spirit makes it active in us. The Holy Spirit takes ideas and makes them personally experiential. When you know that you're guilty of something, when you know that you are experiencing shame because you're not the way that you should be, the Holy Spirit brings us to that awareness so then he cleanses us because he points us to Christ. He makes those ideas experiential realities. That's what he does over and over and over. And the last thing that, there are plenty of other things he does, but to illustrate that, but the last thing I have to say is this at the end of verse 38. The Holy Spirit takes all those things. The Holy Spirit focuses our lives on Jesus. The Holy Spirit takes the love of God and makes it experiential reality on and on and on so that we become outward facing. Look at verse 38. Anyone who believes in me, Jesus says, from his heart flow rivers of living water. If you want to know if the Holy Spirit is working in your life, you have to think about, are you focusing on Jesus? Are, are truths experientially real? And is my life outward focusing? Because if my life isn't outward focusing, then the Holy Spirit is not working in me. What the Holy Spirit does is take what God has said, make it alive, and push me out. Does that make sense? We become witnesses. We become able to explain the love of God and what God has done for us. We become outwardly obedient to what God says. That's what the Spirit does. That's what Jesus is saying here, and we wouldn't have known that if John didn't get it. We wouldn't have known it here anyway if John didn't get it. Because he didn't get it, now we get it. Because he gets it. So let's put all this together. Jesus' statement was not only awkward. This invitation in 37, 38 was not only awkward. It was actually absolutely amazing. What's being talked about in these verses is so deeply Trinitarian. It's so deep. It is absorbed with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It is amazing that Jesus would say this because earlier in the chapter, he had just been telling us over and over and over, my teaching is from the Father, right? Verse 16, something like that. My teaching is not from me, it comes from the Father. Jesus would even say in 28 and 29, I was sent by the Father. So when you read these words, these words of Christ, they're actually the words of the Father too. And we've just talked about what the Spirit does. And Jesus is verbalizing these things. It is so deeply Trinitarian. It is so profound that Jesus would say this, that the Father would say this, that the Spirit would say this and do it. This is why I told you that I haven't gotten to the bottom of this. Because I don't know that there is perhaps a bottom to this. Maybe we'll never get to the bottom of this. Maybe we'll never get to even begin to scratch the surface of the depths of what is going on here. The clues of the feast are not ends and of themselves. The clues of this feast, everything that's going on, are actually clues about Jesus. 
Remember the illustration of my wedding? Remember that a few minutes ago? If you missed that, here's what I said. Imagine being at my wedding, and we've gone through the entire ceremony, and right after the pronouncement is made that husband and wife, right after that happens, someone yells out, I love you, Jenny. How awkward that would be. Well, let me tell you, what if the person who said that was Jenny's dad? And it was his dad, it was her dad, excuse me, delighting in his daughter. What if he said those words because he was approving of the next phase of her life? And he was satisfied that he had prepared her and had been getting her ready for all these years. What if that crying out of, of Jenny, I love you, was not only the cry of goodbye, but the declaration of affirmation of her decision to marry? What Jesus is saying here is he is standing up at the end of this feast and he was saying, I am the reason for everything you've been doing. You're gathering and celebrating, commemorating the grace of God, understanding God's commitment to you, understanding that you are to enjoy God and live and follow him with your lives, understanding that everything about you comes from God. Yeah, I'm the embodiment of that. I'm the reason why you're here. I'm the reason why this feast is happening. Jesus is saying, anyone who thirsts, come to me and drink and believe. He's saying, don't just drink that wine and don't just celebrate this feast thinking it's an end in and of itself. Connect it to me. What Jesus is saying is, we all have a place to take our lives. All of, who, all of what we are, all of who we are. We don't have to stay stuck where we are right now. We don't have to wonder whether or not Jesus really loves us and whether or not Jesus really is powerful enough to do anything to change us. If you feel like you're tired of just wandering around and being aimless, Jesus gives you this invitation as much as he does to me. Whether you're frustrated right now, whether you're overwhelmed, whether you're confused, whether you're lonely, whether you're, whether you're just wandering around and really, really, really not sure whether you're going to end up anywhere. Jesus is saying it's grace, it's blessing, it's provision. I am the sacrifice that came to take away your sin and to give you identity and community and hope. See, the primary application of all of this is that we're supposed to take our whole lives to Jesus incessantly. And that Jesus is incessantly bringing to our awareness how much we try to live our lives apart from him. Whether that's our marriage, our jobs, our family, our singleness, whatever it is. He's saying, I'm still the answer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for saying these words at the end of this feast. 
because they are profoundly true. And we ask, Lord, we ask, Lord Jesus, that you would continue to draw us to yourself. We ask that you, Holy Spirit, will continue to shine the spotlight on Jesus until that is who we want. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would know best, and we know you do, but that you would convince us that you know best how to communicate your love to us, and that we would see it, that we would see it in Jesus. Make us more deeply Trinitarian. Make us, make us know Jesus that you are still our answer. In your name we pray, amen. But as God's people, leave here today knowing that his blessing is upon you, that what Jesus has purchased for you is real, and it matters for everything in your life, every day, all the time. So hear this blessing from God and try to live as if you actually believe it's true this week. Now the God of peace the one that raised Jesus from the dead, because of the blood of Christ, he is eternally bound to you. And through the blood of Christ, he is equipping you with every good thing that you need to do his will this week. Matter of fact, it's even better. He's going to work in you what is pleasing in his sight so that one day all glory will redound to him. It's true now and forever. Amen. Go in peace.